Welcome to today's Triple Z. The Triple Z Podcast is a daily program that you can use to help you fall asleep each night. Just turn down the volume, lay back, relax, and enjoy as you fall asleep. The War of the Worlds is a science fiction novel written by H.G. Wells, first published in 1898. It is one of Wells' most famous works and is considered a classic of the science fiction genre. The story is about an alien invasion of Earth by Martians, and it has been adapted into various forms of media over the years, including movies, radio broadcasts, and television shows. It is not only a thrilling science fiction adventure, but also a commentary on the vulnerability of human civilization and the dangers of unchecked technological advancement. It explores themes of survival, the unpredictability of the natural world, and the clash between different species. If you enjoy our program, please be sure to write us a review on your podcast platform and share us with a friend. You both might sleep just a little better at night. Our website is triple Z, that's three Z's dot media. You can also like and share our content on Facebook or our Instagram account ZZZ Media Podcast. Music for today's episode was provided by the Sleep Channel on Spotify. XI.ET The Window I have already said that my storms of emotion have a trick of exhausting themselves. After a time I discovered that I was cold and wet and with little pools of water about me on the stair carpet. I got almost mechanically, went into the dining room and drank some whiskey and then I was moved to change my clothes. After I had done that I went upstairs to my study, but why I did so I do not know. The window of my study looks over the trees and the railway towards Horsell Common. In the hurry of our departure, this window had been left open. The passage was dark and, by contrast with the picture the window frame enclosed, the side of the room seemed impenetrably dark. I stopped short in the doorway. The thunderstorm had passed. The towers of the Oriental College and the pine trees about it had gone, and very far away, lit by a vivid red glare, the common about the sand pits was visible. Across the light huge black shapes, grotesque and strange, moved busily to and fro. It seemed indeed as if the whole country in that direction was on fire, a broad hillside set with minute tongues of flame, swaying and writhing with the gusts of the dying storm and throwing a red reflection upon the clouds scud above. Every now and then a haze of smoke from some nearer conflagration drove across the window and hid the Martian shapes. I could not see what they were doing, nor the clear form of them, nor recognize the black objects they were busied upon. Neither could I see the nearer fire, though the reflections of it danced on the wall and ceiling of the study. A sharp, resinous tang of burning was in the air. I closed the door noiselessly and crept towards the window. As I did so, the view opened out until, on the one hand, it reached to the houses about Woking Station and on the other to the charred and blackened pine woods of Byfleet. There was a light down below the hill, on the railway, 
near the arch, and several of the houses along the Mayberry Road and the streets near the station were glowing ruins. The light upon the railway puzzled me at first. There were a black heap and a vivid glare, and to the right of that a row of yellow oblongs. Then I perceived this was a wrecked train, the four parts smashed and on fire, the hinder carriages still upon the rails. Between these three main centers of light, the houses, the train, and the burning county towards Chobham stretched to regular patches of dark country, broken here and there by intervals of dimly glowing and smoking ground. It was the strangest spectacle, that black expanse set with fire. It reminded me, more than anything else, of the potteries at night. At first I could distinguish no people at all, though I peered intently for them. Later I saw against the light of Woking Station a number of black figures hurrying one after the other across the line. And this was the little world in which I had been living securely for years, this fiery chaos. What had happened in the last seven hours I still did not know, nor did I know, though I was beginning to guess, the relation between these mechanical colossi and the sluggish lumps I had seen disgorged from the cylinder. With a queer feeling of impersonal interest I turned my desk chair to the window, sat down, and stared at the blackened country, and particularly at the three gigantic black things that were going to and fro in the glare about the sand pits. They seemed amazingly busy. I began to ask myself what they could be. Were they intelligent mechanisms? Such a thing I felt was impossible. Or did a Martian sit within each, ruling, directing, using, much as a man's brain sits and rules in his body? I began to compare the things to human machines, to ask myself for the first time in my life how an ironclad or a steam engine would seem to an intelligent lower animal. The storm had left the sky clear, and over the smoke of the burning land the little fading pinpoint of Mars was dropping into the west when a soldier came into my garden. I heard a slight scraping at the fence, and rousing myself from the lethargy that had fallen upon me, I looked down and saw him dimly, clambering over the palings. At the sight of another human being my torpor passed, and I leaned out of the window eagerly. Hissed, said I, in a whisper. He stopped astride of the fence in doubt. Then he came over and across the lawn to the corner of the house. He bent down and stepped softly. Who's there, he said, also whispering, standing under the window and peering up. Where are you going? I asked. God knows. Are you trying to hide? That's it. Come into the house, I said. I went down unfastened the door and let him in and locked the door again. I could not see his face. He was hatless and his coat was unbuttoned. My God, he said as I drew him in. What has happened? I asked. What has it? In the obscurity I could see he made a gesture of despair. They wiped us out simply wiped us out, he repeated again and again. He followed me, 
almost mechanically into the dining room. Take some whiskey, I said, pouring out a stiff dose. He drank it. Then abruptly he sat down before the table, put his head on his arms, and began to sob and weep like a little boy in a perfect passion of emotion while I, with a curious forgetfulness of my own recent despair, stood beside him, wondering. It was a long time before he could steady his nurse to answer my questions, and then he answered perplexingly and brokenly. He was a driver in the artillery and had only come into action about seven. At that time firing was going on across the common and it was said the first party of Martians were crawling slowly towards their second cylinder under cover of a metal shield. Later this shield staggered up on tripod legs and became the first of the fighting machines I had seen. The gun he drove had been unlimbered near Horsel in order to command the sand pits and its arrival it was that had precipitated the action. As the limber gunners went to the rear, his horse trod in a rabbit hole and came down, throwing him into a depression of the ground. At the same moment the gun exploded behind him, the ammunition blew up, there was fire all about him, and he found himself lying under a heap of charred dead men and dead horses. I lay still, he said, scared out of my wits, with the forequarter of a horse atop of me. We've been wiped out. And the smell, good God, like burnt meat. I was hurt across the back by the fall of the horse, and there I had to lie until I felt better. Just like parade it had been a minute before, then stumble, bang, swish. Wiped out, he said. He had hid under the dead horse for a long time, peeping out furtively across the common. The cardigan men had tried a rush, in skirmishing order, at the pit, simply to be swept out of existence. Then the monster had risen to its feet and had begun to walk leisurely to and fro across the common among the few fugitives, with its head-like hood turning about exactly like the head of a cowled human being. A kind of arm carried a complicated metallic case, about which green flashes scintillated, and out of the funnel of this there smoked the heat ray. In a few minutes there was, so far as the soldier could see, not a living thing left upon the common, and every bush and tree upon it that was not already a blackened skeleton was burning. The hussars had been on the road beyond the curvature of the ground, and he saw nothing of them. He heard the maxims rattle for a time and then become still. The giant saved Woking Station and its cluster of houses until the last, then in a moment the heat ray was brought to bear and the town became a heap of fiery ruins. Then the thing shut off the heat ray and turning its back upon the artillerymen began to waddle away towards the smoldering pine woods that sheltered the second cylinder. As it did so, a second glittering titan built itself up out of the pit. The second monster followed the first, and at that the artillerymen began to crawl very cautiously across the hot heather ash towards Horsehole. He managed to get a light into the ditch by the side of the road, and so escaped Woking. There his story became ejaculatory. The place was impassable. 
It seems there were a few people alive there, frantic for the most part and many burned and scalded. He was turned aside by the fire and in among some almost scorching heaps of broken wall as one of the Martian giants returned. He saw this one pursue a man, catch him up in one of its steely tentacles and knock his head against the trunk of a pine tree. At last, after nightfall, the artilleryman made a rush for it and got over the railway embankment. Since then he had been skulking along towards Mayberry in the hope of getting out of danger London Ward. People were hiding in trenches and cellars and many of the survivors had made off towards Woking Village and Send. He had been consumed with thirst until he found one of the water mains near the railway arch smashed and the water bubbling out like a spring upon the road. That was the story I got from him, bit by bit. He grew calmer telling me and trying to make me see the things he had seen. He had eaten no food since midday, he told me early in his narrative, and I found some mutton and bread in the pantry and brought it into the room. We lit no lamp for fear of attracting the Martians, and ever and again our hands would touch upon bread or meat. As he talked, things about us came darkly out of the darkness, and the trampled bushes and broken rose trees outside the window grew distinct. It would seem that a number of men or animals had rushed across the lawn. I began to see his face, blackened and haggard, as no doubt mine was also. When we had finished eating, we went softly upstairs to my study, and I looked again out of the open window. In one night, the valley had become a valley of ashes. The fires had dwindled now. Where flames had been, there were now streamers of smoke, but the countless ruins of shattered and gutted houses and blasted and blackened trees that the night had hidden stood out now gaunt and terrible in the pitiless light of dawn. Yet here and there some object had had the luck to escape, a white railway signal here, the end of a greenhouse there, white and fresh amid the wreckage. Never before in the history of warfare had destruction been so indiscriminate and so universal. And shining with the growing light of the east, three of the metallic giants stood about the pit, their cowls rotating as though they were surveying the desolation they had made. It seemed to me that the pit had been enlarged, and ever and again puffs of vivid green vapor streamed up and out of it towards the brightening dawn, streamed up, whirled, broke, and vanished. Beyond were the pillars of fire about Chobham. They became pillars of bloodshot smoke at the first touch of day. 12. What I saw the destruction of Weybridge and Shepperton. As the dawn grew brighter, we withdrew from the window from which we had watched the Martians and went very quietly downstairs. The artilleryman agreed with me that the house was no place to stay in. He proposed, he said, to make his way London Ward and thence rejoin his battery, number 12, of the horse artillery. My plan was to return at once to Leatherhead and so greatly had the strength of the Martians impressed me that I had determined to take my wife to New Haven and go with her out of the country forthwith. For I already perceived clearly that the country about London must inevitably be the scene of a disastrous struggle before such creatures as these could be destroyed.
Between us and Leatherhead, however, lay the third cylinder with its guarding giants. Had I been alone, I think I should have taken my chance and struck across country. But the artilleryman dissuaded me, it's no kindness to the right sort of wife, he said, to make her a widow, and in the end I agreed to go with him, under cover of the woods, northward as far as Street Cobham before I parted with him. Thence I would make a big detour by Epsom to reach Leatherhead. I should have started at once, but my companion had been in active service and he knew better than that. He made me ransack the house for a flask, which he filled with whiskey, and we lined every available pocket with packets of biscuits and slices of meat. Then we crept out of the house and ran as quickly as we could down the ill-made road by which I had come overnight. The houses seemed deserted. In the road lay a group of three charred bodies close together, struck dead by the heat ray, and here and there were things that people had dropped, a clock, a slipper, a silver spoon, and the like poor valuables. At the corner turning up towards the post office a little cart, filled with boxes and furniture, and horseless, heeled over on a broken wheel. A cash box had been hastily smashed open and thrown under the debris. Except the lodge at the orphanage, which was still on fire, none of the houses had suffered very greatly here. The heat ray had shaved the chimney tops and passed. Yet, save ourselves, there did not seem to be a living soul on Mayberry Hill. The majority of the inhabitants had escaped, I suppose, by way of the old Woking Road, the road I had taken when I drove to Leatherhead, where they had hidden. We went down the lane, by the body of the man in black, sodden now from the overnight hail, and broke into the woods at the foot of the hill. We pushed through these towards the railway without meeting a soul. The woods across the line were but the scarred and blackened ruins of woods, for the most part the trees had fallen, but a certain proportion still stood, dismal gray stems with dark brown foliage instead of green. On our side the fire had done no more than scorch the nearer trees, it had failed to secure its footing. In one place the woodman had been at work on Saturday, trees, felled and freshly trimmed, lay in a clearing with heaps of sawdust by the sawing machine and its engine. Hard by was a temporary hut, deserted. There was not a breath of wind this morning, and everything was strangely still. Even the birds were hushed, and as we hurried along I and the artillerymen talked in whispers and looked now and again over our shoulders. Once or twice we stopped to listen. After a time we drew near the road, and as we did so we heard the clatter of hoofs and saw through the tree stems three cavalry soldiers riding slowly towards Woking. We hailed them, and they halted while we hurried towards them. It was a lieutenant and a couple of privates of the 8th Hussars, with a stand like a theodolite, which the artilleryman told me was a heliograph. You are the first man I've seen coming this way this morning, said the lieutenant. What's brewing? His voice and face were eager. The men behind him stared curiously. 
the artilleryman jumped down the bank into the road and saluted. Gun destroyed last night, sir. Have been hiding. Trying to rejoin battery, sir. You'll come inside of the Martians, I expect, about half a mile along this road. What the deacons are they like? Asked the lieutenant. Giants in armor, sir. Hundred feet high. Three legs and a body like aluminium with a mighty gray head and a hood, sir. Get out, said the lieutenant. What confounded nonsense. You'll see, sir. They carry a kind of box, sir, that shoots fire and strikes you dead. What do you mean, a gun? No, sir, and the artilleryman began a vivid account of the heat ray. Halfway through, the lieutenant interrupted him and looked up at me. I was still standing on the bank by the side of the road. It's perfectly true, I said. Well, said the lieutenant, I suppose it's my business to see it too. Look here, to the artillerymen, we're detailed here clearing people out of their houses. You better go along and report yourself to Brigadier General Marvin and tell him all you know. He's at Weybridge. Know the way? I do, I said, and he turned his horse southward again. Half a mile, you say, said he. At most, I answered and pointed over the treetops southward. He thanked me and rode on and we saw them no more. Farther along we came upon a group of three women and two children in the road, busy clearing out a laborer's cottage. They had got hold of a little hand truck and were piling it up with unclean looking bundles and shabby furniture. They were all too assiduously engaged to talk to us as we passed. By Byfleet Station we emerged from the pine trees and found the country calm and peaceful under the morning sunlight. We were far beyond the range of the heat ray there, and had it not been for the silent desertion of some of the houses, the stirring movement of packing and others, and the knot of soldiers standing on the bridge over the railway and staring down the line towards Woking, the day would have seemed very like any other Sunday. Several farm wagons and carts were moving creakily along the road to Adelstone, and suddenly through the gate of a field we saw, across a stretch of flat meadow, six twelve-pounders standing neatly at equal distances pointing towards Woking. The gunners stood by the guns waiting, and the ammunition wagons were at a business-like distance. The men stood almost as if under inspection. That's good said I, they will get one fair shot, at any rate. The artilleryman hesitated at the gate. I shall go on, he said. Farther on towards Weybridge, just over the bridge, there were a number of men in white fatigue jackets throwing up a long rampart and more guns behind. It's bows and arrows against the lightning, anyhow, said the artilleryman they even seen that fire beam yet. The officers who were not actively engaged stood and stared over the treetops southwestward and the men digging would stop every now and again to stare in the same direction. 
Byfleet was in a tumult, people packing, and a score of hussars, some of them dismounted, some on horseback, were hunting them about. Three or four black government wagons, with crosses in white circles, and an old omnibus, among other vehicles, were being loaded in the village street. There were scores of people, most of them sufficiently sabbatical to have assumed their best clothes. The soldiers were having the greatest difficulty in making them realize the gravity of their position. We saw one shriveled old fellow with a huge box and a score or more of flower pots containing orchids angrily expostulating with the corporal who would leave them behind. I stopped and gripped his arm. Do you know what's over there? I said, pointing at the pine tops that hit the Martians. Eh, said he, turning. I was explaining these as valuable. Death. I shouted. Death is coming. Death, and leading him to digest that if he could, I hurried on after the artillery man. At the corner I looked back. The soldier had left him, and he was still standing by his box, with the pots of orchids on the lid of it, and staring vaguely over the trees. No one in Weybridge could tell us where the headquarters were established, the whole place was in such confusion as I had never seen in any town before. Carts, carriages everywhere, the most astonishing miscellany of conveyances and horseflesh. The respectable inhabitants of the place, men in golf and boating costumes, wives prettily dressed, were packing, riverside loafers energetically helping, children excited, and, for the most part, highly delighted at this astonishing variation of their Sunday experiences. In the midst of it all the worthy vicar was very pluckily holding an early celebration, and his bell was jangling out above the excitement. I and the artilleryman, seated on the step of the drinking fountain, made a very passable meal upon what we had brought with us. Patrols of soldiers, here no longer hussars, but grenadiers in white, were warning people to move now or to take refuge in their cellars as soon as the firing began. We saw as we crossed the railway bridge that a growing crowd of people had assembled in and about the railway station and the swarming platform was piled with boxes and packages. The ordinary traffic had been stopped, I believe, in order to allow the passage of troops and guns to Chertsey and I have heard since that a savage drivel occurred for places in the special trains that were put on at a later hour. We remained at Weybridge until midday and at that hour we found ourselves at the place near Shepherd and Locke where the way in Thames join. Part of the time we spent helping two old women to pack a little cart. The way has a treble mouth, and at this point boats are to be hired, and there was a ferry across the river. On the Shepherd and side was an inn with a lawn, and beyond that the tower of Shepherd and Church, it has been replaced by a spire, rose above the trees. Here we found an excited and noisy crowd of fugitives. As yet the flight had not grown to a panic, but there were already far more people than all the boats going to and fro could enable to cross. People came panting along under heavy burdens, 
one husband and wife were even carrying a small outhouse door between them with some of their household goods piled thereon. One man told us he meant to try to get away from Shepherd and Station. There was a lot of shouting, and one man was even jesting. The idea people seemed to have here was that the Martians were simply formidable human beings who might attack and sack the town to be certainly destroyed in the end. Every now and then people would glance nervously across the way at the meadows towards Chertsey, but everything over there was still. Across the Thames, except just where the boats landed, everything was quiet in vivid contrast with the Surrey side. The people who landed there from the boats went tramping off down the lane. The big ferry boat had just made a journey. Three or four soldiers stood on the lawn of the inn, staring and jesting at the fugitives without offering to help. The inn was closed, as it was now within prohibited hours. What's that? cried a boatman, and shut up. You fool, said a man near me to a yelping dog. Then the sound came again, this time from the direction of Chertsey, a muffled thud, the sound of a gun. The fighting was beginning. Almost immediately unseen batteries across the river to our right, unseen because of the trees, took up the chorus, firing heavily one after the other. A woman screamed. Everyone stood arrested by the sudden stir of battle, near us and yet invisible to us. Nothing was to be seen save flat meadows, cows feeding unconcernedly for the most part, and silvery pollard willows motionless in the warm sunlight. The soldiers stop him, said a woman beside me, doubtfully. A haziness rose over the treetops. Then suddenly we saw a rush of smoke far away up the river, a puff of smoke that jerked up into the air and hung, and forth with the ground heat underfoot and a heavy explosion shook the air, smashing two or three windows in the houses near, and leaving us astonished. Here they are, shouted a man in a blue jersey. Yonder! Do you see them? Yonder! Quickly, one after the other, one, two, three, for the armored Martians appeared far away over the little trees across the flat meadows that stretched towards Chertsey and striding hurriedly towards the river. Little cow figures they seemed at first, going with a rolling motion and as fast as flying birds. Then, advancing obliquely towards us, came a fifth. Their armored bodies glittered in the sun as they swept swiftly forward upon the guns growing rapidly larger as they drew nearer. One on the extreme left, the remotest that is, flourished a huge case high in the air, and the ghostly, terrible heat ray I had already seen on Friday night smote towards Chertsey and struck the town. At sight of these strange, swift, and terrible creatures the crowd near the water's edge seemed to me to be for a moment horror-struck. There was no screaming or shouting, but a silence. Then a hoarse murmur and a movement of feet, a splashing from the water. A man, too frightened to drop the portmanteau he carried on his shoulder, swung round and sent me staggering with a blow from the corner of his burden. 
A woman thrust at me with her hand and rushed past me. I turned with the rush of the people, but I was not too terrified for thought. The terrible heat ray was in my mind. To get underwater. That was it. Get underwater. I shouted, unheeded. I faced about again and rushed towards the approaching Martian, rushed right down the gravelly beach and headlong into the water. Others did the same. A boatload of people putting back came leaping out as I rushed past. The stones under my feet were muddy and slippery, and the river was so low that I ran perhaps 20 feet scarcely waist deep. Then, as the Martian towered overhead scarcely a couple of hundred yards away, I flung myself forward under the surface. The splashes of the people and the boats leaping into the river sounded like thunderclaps in my ears. People were landing hastily on both sides of the river. But the Martian machine took no more notice for the moment of the people running this way and that than a man with the confusion of ants in a nest against which his foot has kicked. When, half suffocated, I raised my head above water, the Martians had pointed at the batteries that were still firing across the river, and as it advanced it swung loose what must have been the generator of the heat ray. In another moment it was on the bank and in a stride waiting halfway across. The knees of its foremost legs bent at the farther bank and in another moment it had raised itself to its full height again, close to the village of Shepparton. Forth with the six guns which, unknown to anyone on the right bank, had been hidden behind the outskirts of that village, fired simultaneously. The sudden near concussion, the last close upon the first, made my heart jump. The monster was already raising the case generating the heat ray as the first shell burst six yards above the hood. I gave a cry of astonishment. I saw and thought nothing of the other four Martian monsters. My attention was riveted upon the nearer incident. Simultaneously, two other shells burst in the air near the body as the hood twisted round in time to receive, but not in time to dodge, the fourth shell. The shell burst clean in the face of the thing. The hood bulged, flashed, was whirled off in a dozen tattered fragments of red flesh and glittering metal. Hit, shouted I, with something between a scream and a cheer. I heard answering shouts from the people in the water about me. I could have leaped out of the water with that momentary exultation. The decapitated colossus reeled like a drunken giant, but it did not fall over. It recovered its balance by a miracle and, no longer heeding its steps and with the camera that fired the heat ray now rigidly upheld, it reeled swiftly upon Shepardon. The living intelligence, the Martian within the hood, was slain and splashed to the four winds of heaven and the thing was now but a mere intricate device of metal whirling to destruction. It drove along in a straight line, incapable of guidance. It struck the tower of Shepherd and Church, smashing it down as the impact of a battering ram might have done, swerved aside, blundered on and collapsed with tremendous force into the river out of my sight. A violent explosion shook the air 
and a spout of water, steam, mud, and shattered metal shot far up into the sky. As the camera of the heat ray hit the water, the ladder had immediately flashed into steam. In another moment, a huge wave, like a muddy tidal bore but almost scaldingly hot, came sweeping round the bend upstream. I saw people struggling shorewards and heard their screaming and shouting faintly above the seething and roar of the Martians' collapse. For a moment, I heeded nothing of the heat, forgot the patent need of self-preservation. I splashed through the tumultuous water, pushing aside a man in black to do so until I could see round the bend. Half a dozen deserted boats pitched aimlessly upon the confusion of the waves. The fallen Martian came into sight downstream, lying across the river and for the most part submerged. Thick clouds of steam were pouring off the wreckage and through the tumultuously whirling wisps I could see, intermittently and vaguely, the gigantic limbs churning the water and flinging a splash and spray of mud and froth into the air. The tentacles swayed and struck like living arms, and, save for the helpless purposelessness of these movements, it was as if some wounded thing were struggling for its life amid the waves. Enormous quantities of a ruddy brown fluid were spurring up in noisy jets out of the machine. My attention was diverted from this death flurry by a furious yelling like that of the thing called a siren in our manufacturing towns. A man, knee-deep near the towing path, shouted inaudibly to me and pointed. Looking back, I saw the other Martians advancing with gigantic strides down the riverbank from the direction of Chertsey. The shepherd and guns spoke this time unavailingly. At that I ducked at once underwater and, holding my breath until movement was in agony, blundered painfully ahead under the surface as long as I could. The water was in a tumult about me and rapidly growing hotter. When for a moment I raised my head to take breath and throw the hair and water from my eyes, the steam was rising in a whirling white fog that at first hit the Martians altogether. The noise was deafening. Then I saw them dimly, colossal figures of grey, magnified by the mist. They had passed by me, and two were stooping over the frothing, tumultuous ruins of their comrade. The third and fourth stood beside him in the water, one perhaps two hundred yards from me, the other towards Lilham. The generators of the heat rays waved high, and the hissing beams smote down this way and that. The air was full of sound, a deafening and confusing conflict of noises, the clangorous din of the Martians, the crash of falling houses, the thud of trees, fences, sheds flashing into flame, and the crackling and roaring of fire. Dense black smoke was leaping up to mingle with the steam from the river, and as the heat ray went to and fro over Weybridge, its impact was marked by flashes of incandescent light that gave place at once to a smoky dance of lurid flames. The nearer houses still stood intact, awaiting their fate, shadowy, faint and pallid in the steam, with the fire behind them going to and fro. For a moment perhaps I stood there, breast high in the almost boiling water, dumbfounded in my position, hopeless of escape. 
through the reek I could see the people who had been with me in the river scrambling out of the water through the reeds, like little frogs hurrying through grass from the advance of a man, were running to and fro in utter dismay on the towing path. Then suddenly the white flashes of the heat ray came leaping towards me. The houses caved in as they dissolved at its touch and darted up flames, the trees changed to fire with a roar. The ray flickered up and down the towing path, licking off the people who ran this way and that, and came down to the water's edge not fifty yards from where I stood. It swept across the river to Shepparton, and the water in its track rose in a boiling muck crested with steam. I turned shoreward. In another moment the huge wave, while not at the boiling point, had rushed upon me. I screamed aloud and scalded, half-blinded, agonized, I staggered through the leaping, hissing water towards the shore. Had my foot stumbled, it would have been the end. I fell helplessly, in full sight of the Martians, upon the broad, bare gravelly spit that runs down to mark the angle of the way in Thames. I expected nothing but death. I have a dim memory of the foot of a Martian coming down within a score of yards of my head, driving straight into the loose gravel, whirling it this way and that and lifting again, of a long suspense, and then of the four carrying the debris of their comrade between them, now clear and then presently faint through a veil of smoke, receding interminably, as it seemed to me, across a vast space of river and meadow. And then, very slowly, I realized that by a miracle I had escaped.